Thank you very much. Thank you for coming. And we're continuing in um, the book of Romans and we're continuing that, that really tough section. Not just tough to read, Betty. It's tough to understand, tough to preach on. Uh, of that, the little uh, spiritual history, I guess you'd call it, of the nation of Israel. We're doing the third part, chapter 11. If you remember, you remember that uh, we said that these three chapters represent the past, uh, present and future history and position of Israel. And we've looked at the past uh, a couple of weeks ago. Last week we looked at Israel's present position and condition and today is the last part, the future, which, let me tell you, has always been and will be until it actually happens, speculative. All right? That's why it's a tough thing to to preach on. But there's one thing that you have to understand this morning. Israel has a future, whatever it might be, whatever the the theologians might say, whatever the rabbis might say, whatever the sceptics might say, Israel has a future. And we're going to look at the reason why that is. if you were here last week, we, we left, we left chapter 10 with God's arms. What did it say? It said that they were, they were all day long, they were held out, weren't they? That's where we left it, with God pleading with a disobedient, an obstinate, a stubborn, a rebellious group of people his own people that he loved, that he blessed, that he delivered from bondage. And there there we left God, didn't we? We left him there with his arms wide open, beckoning, pleading his people to come back to him. And so Paul asks the, the natural question in verse 11. He says, I ask then... Did God reject his people? How how would you be feeling? I'm not making light of this, right, by saying if you're in God's position. I know it, it can be blasphemous to say that, but if you could just picture yourself pleading with someone to come back, to have that relationship that you had with them before restored, so you can enjoy your, each other's company. So that, so that you can have fellowship and friendship and companionship together. So, so you, 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 you could, you know, live out the expression of love with each other. How would you feel after a week, a month, a year, ten years? Okay, get going. And, Nobody came. You were continually rebuffed, rejected. Those arms are going to get tired, yes? My arms would get tired. The question is, because they rejected God, Paul says, has God rejected Israel? And we just briefly said last week, no, absolutely not. And Paul's taking up that question 
in greater detail now. Why not? Why has God not rejected Israel? Why has God continued to look out for them, promising them a future? I mean, they disobeyed him, not once, not twice, but over and over again. In fact, it tells us in the Old Testament that Israel, God's chosen people, the way they behaved, the way they lived, Brought, brought dishonour to God. They failed to live out their purpose, the, the, the task, the reason that God chose them. They failed to, to deliver. And they rejected and crucified God's only son. When God sent his son, in keeping with a promise that he would send a Messiah, to, to, to rule over them as God's representative. They rejected him as well and nailed him to a cross and watched him die. Amongst a whole heap of other things you can read about in the gospel. And that's not enough, you know. Because we, 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 we remembered this morning, didn't we, that, that Jesus Christ rose again to life. And, and bring salvation to all who believe. We've been talking about that for months now in the book of Romans. But the Jews, the Israelite nation, they weren't happy with that news, so they went and they persecuted and killed the proclaimers of the gospel. And there's God, arms still wide open. He hasn't rejected them. He hasn't, he hasn't done away with them. Now my attitude would be, you know what? My arms are getting tired here. They've had their chance. They've had many chances. They've blown it. I'm done with them. Now I said last week, you're lucky I'm not God. Because I'd make a terrible God. I really would. That would be my attitude. I'm sure it would be most of our attitudes. But that's not God's attitude. You see, Israel rejected God. But God did not reject Israel. No way. What I'd like to do this morning is in this chapter, it is a difficult chapter, speculative. We could spend days talking about things that may happen and may not happen. But I'd like to show you why Israel has a future and it's because of God's character because of his character his character traits and the first character trait I want to bring to you is God's faithfulness you know again we could spend weeks talking about that but just in context of this of what's happening here God's faithfulness he made Israel a promise He promised, God promised something. And even though things haven't quite worked out like they should have, and God perhaps would have liked, we see God intervening and sending his son. And even though they rejected his son, God still kept that promise to bring about salvation. 
And he brought about salvation through Jesus Christ. It was accomplished at Calvary. And the good news, the gospel that we've been thinking about this morning went out and is still going out, praise God. And most of us here have been the recipients of that good news and the beneficiaries of that good news. And we have a future because of the good news that we've believed. God faithfully said that he wanted to bless all the nations. Right back in Genesis. That's the promise. And because he promised that, Israel has a future. You see, Paul is asking the question, what about all the... If God has rejected, supposedly, Israel, what about all those promises that he made to Israel, specifically to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob? What about those promises? There's a big difference between God's promises, folks, and man's promises, huge. You know, I think this is one of our problems that we have because when I was a young kid, when you promise something, people sort of think, oh, yeah. So what did you say? Cross your heart and hope to die. Because even as a young kid, you knew that promises could be broken. You could promise something and then not keep that promise. That's our experience as humans. Yes? Yes. And just like a lot of character traits of God that we really can't comprehend, we cannot comprehend God keeping his promises no matter what. I'll give you some examples. God's promises are binding, binding, like a contract that cannot be broken. A little bit unlike uh, Joey Danaher, isn't it, Barbara? Hmm. You know I'm an Essendon fan. Joey Danaher is contracted to the Bombers for another year. He doesn't want to play for us anymore. He wants to go to Sydney. And it'll probably happen, even though he promised that he would play for us. Essendon's still paying him the money. He doesn't want to keep his promise anymore doesn't matter what the contract says. God's promise is guaranteed. I was going to bring you a, a piece of paper. I've got, I've got the, I, I buy some tiles from the local tile shop here. In the, in the job that I do, I do a lot of tiling. And he has a, you know, the, the invoice, there's a few things written on the front and it's very scant, you know, a, little, a few little things, a price and that. And then he's got his, his, uh, his guarantee, right? It says, uh, goods are guaranteed in accordance to the writing on the back of the page. I couldn't find the invoice. But let me tell you something. You lift, you flip the thing over, the writing is this big and the whole back of the full scap page are the terms and conditions by which that guarantee is binding. It's conditional. When God promises something, there are none of those little clauses like that. 
When he makes a contract, he keeps his side of the bargain. And then God's promise, it's his sacred word. Now you may not really appreciate that, but it's, but it's even stronger than like a vow. Like a vow. You know, you, you promise to do something and you really, really mean it and, and you intend to keep it forever. Now the closest thing that we can equate to that is the marriage vow. That's what it is. What does it say? You promise to love, honour, obey no matter what, in sickness and health, until death do us part. Or if in the the more modern version, which I've, I've used recently in some of the ceremonies I've done, until we both shall live. That's the idea, right? It's you cannot break this vow. It's so it's so meaningful that only death cancels out that promise. And you know, you know that even the marriage vow isn't as sacred as it used to be. You know, at the moment. Marriage is over, over half of the marriages that will end up in divorce, they say. And since the 80s, which is probably 30 odd years ago, the, the marriages from the mid 80s till now, when they look at the figures, those figures, it's nearly pushing to two thirds of those marriages will end in divorce at some stage. So we can't really appreciate, can we, what a promise really is. We can't even really appreciate what a vow is. Contract, forget about them, we can get out of them. But God, it says in the scriptures, in Isaiah, he's not like us. His ways are not like our ways. His thoughts are not like his, our thoughts. And let me tell you, it doesn't say that in Isaiah, it doesn't say this in Isaiah. His promises are not like my promises or your promises. So God is faithful. He keeps his promise. God also honours faithfulness. He honours faithfulness. That's in verses 2 to 12. There's a little story in 1 Kings with Elijah. And, and you know, Elijah's had a tough time with King Ahab and his wife uh, Jezebel. You know, and there's the Mount Carmel thing and, and everything. You think you know the story. But I, Elijah was really de- depressed and, 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 and despondent because he thought he was the only believer left in Israel who truly believed God. The, I'm the only one left God is what he said. God just said, Elijah, Elijah, Elijah. He says, there are 7,000 true believers left in Israel. A remnant. You know, what's a remnant? A remnant is, is a remaining, usually a small part or quantity of, of what was supposed to be there. In this concept, it is a small part of true believers of the nation of Israel. 7,000. That sounds like a lot. 
But when you think that it, sh- it should represent the entire nation of Israel, all the Jews, which were probably you know, a couple of million or so, it was only 7,000, very small percentage. And the qualification to be a part of that remnant, because they were all Jews, they were all Jewish, they were all Israelites, they all lived in, in you know, in, in, in Israel, the, the nation, the country, the, the, you know, the, the land. What was the qualification? It says it here in, in, the, in, the, in the Roman reading. It's also in First Kings 19. He says, there are 7,000 who didn't bow the knee. So that's what marked that remnant. They truly believed. Yeah, all the rest of them were also Israelites. Nationally, they were Israelites. They all had the opportunity to to worship the same God. Those 7,000 people were no different. They weren't special. They weren't unique. They weren't superhuman. But they didn't bow the knee. They, they, they hadn't gone along, brothers and sisters, with, with the, the godless ideology of that time. They didn't go along with Ahab and Jezebel's what they wanted to do, the politically correct thing to do at that time. Unfortunately, the others, they went along, they no longer followed the decrees of God and, and, and what Paul is saying here is they no longer believed. It's very, very important that we note that. Because of their unbelief. Because of Israel's unbelief, there were only 7,000 people left. And, and Paul is saying it's the same now. That's what he says here. At this present time, nothing has changed. Right? God hasn't abandoned them. God has not ignored them. God hasn't marginalised uh, the, the people that believed in Israel. In fact, God appreciates faithfulness. Always has. To the point where when, when there is only eight people who truly believe. He went to the trouble to build a really big ark and he persevered and saved those eight people in the ark. And you know that story. The kids know that story. The whole world was wicked by eight people who believed. Eight. Now as a renovator... I love it when I go to someone's house and they say, we're going to gut the, gut the, uh, the bathroom, we're going to take everything out, strip the walls down, we're going to start from scratch, because that's really easy then. Still a lot of work, but it's easier. I'm not so happy, Graham, when they say, you know, we want to keep the bath. You go, oh, keep the bath. <laughs> you know, God's desire was to cleanse the world of, of evil and wickedness in Genesis. Again, if I had been God, it would have been so much easier. Yep, yep, just scratch everything out, flood everything, cover it. Let's start again. But again, it's lucky I'm not God. Because even if there were only eight faithful people, eight people who believed, God would act. He would keep his promise. 
And Paul is reusing these examples from the Old Testament. Remember how important the Old Testament is? From the Old Testament to illustrate to, to the people of his day, and it should be important to us here today, God honours faithfulness. So when we struggle, brothers and sisters, at work, in our, in our family relationships, perhaps if we have unsaved family members, in our neighbourhood, wherever we might be, even if, if things don't turn out so good you know, politically for us. When we struggle, God honours faithfulness, keeps his promise. And, you know, it's a sad indictment, it really is, that nowhere in the scriptures do we read that there was ever a time where the entire nation of Israel followed after God. That's sad. And that's what Paul is saying here. A remnant, always was a remnant. There's a remnant now and there'll be a remnant in the future. From verses 11 to 24, we see God, the horticulturist, the gardener. And that's not unusual. Right from the, very, from the get-go in Genesis, God's into gardens. He really is. That's how he pictured earth as a garden. And where did he place man? In the beautiful garden that he created. So it's no, no coincidence that he's using a horticultural example here to explain something. In grafting, I don't know if you're about, you know anything about grafting plants. But what you do with, I'll just very quickly, you know. It, it, to graft uh, a plant, you, you get a root stock which is healthy, but it's not producing the great sort of fruit that you want. So the rootstock's ordinary. And you use that rootstock and you get branches from another plant that you've cultivated that you know is going to produce either sweeter fruit, more, more yields, or it's more resistant to, to weather and pests. And you graft, you, you place that into that rootstock by the various different means that they have. There's split grafting and you know, all the rest of it. And then that, that branch takes root, grows, thrives, produces the fruit that it, that, that it has. That's the way it's normally done. In fact, it's always done like that. That's the reason you do it. You see, the rootstock that, that Paul is referring to are the promises. The promises of God to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Nothing wrong with the rootstock. That olive tree should have produced great fruit, an abundance of fruit, but it didn't. But there was nothing wrong with the rootstock. What was wrong? Branches. That's what it says here. And the tree has always symbolised, the olive tree rather, has always symbolised um, Israel. You can find that in lots of places, in, in Jeremiah 11 and Hosea. And even the Lord, when he was here in the New Testament, referred to the olive tree as, as uh, the nation of Israel. And you read in this passage that we read together two types of branches, right? Two types. And we read that, that, that some branches, and in fact I, I believe it was most, it says some of the branches were broken off 
removed. And then we read of other branches being added to this rootstock. So, what, what was wrong with the broken branch? Why were branches broken off? Who were they? That's a lot of speculation. But really, really clearly it says here, those who did not believe. It was because of unbelief, brothers and sisters, that those branches were broken off. How do we know this? Because the branches didn't produce the fruit. They were useless. They were doing nothing. They didn't produce what was expected of them. Now, you'd also note here, which is a bit different from, from man, between, difference between man and God, is that the tree, the tree was not cut down. You know, you have a tree out the backyard, it's doing nothing, not producing the fruit that it's supposed to produce. You know, you may, you may spray, trim, prune and Ring up Vasily, you know, on, on, on you know, Vasily's the gardening bloke on 3AW. But eventually, you know, even Vasily says, get rid of the tree. The tree wasn't cut down. It wasn't pulled out. It, the tree was not replaced. Nothing wrong with the promises. It was the branches. The branches that were cared for and tended and looked after weren't producing what was expected. You know, we need to think about these things, brothers and sisters. I've got three chickens at home. Some of you met them yesterday. Two browns and a white. Good chickens, you know. Up until a little while ago, they all laid lots and lots of eggs. But, you know, they molt in the winter. You would know this. Now, the brown ones have started relaying eggs. Beautiful, lovely eggs, you know, lots of eggs. The white one, it's been four months, hasn't laid an egg. How do I know? Because brown chickens lay brown eggs. White chickens lay white eggs, Liz. I I can't work out why the black chickens... They don't, they don't, because I used to have, <laughs> I know that. But, but that's how I know the white chicken isn't laying. And I went and collected the eggs on Friday, and I'm, and I'm washing them, and I said to Pauline, I said, the white chicken's still not laying. It's been four months, that's a long time. And you know, all my chickens get fed well, looked after, they get really nice scraps, and you know, they, they eat, I look after them, all, I look after them all the same. But only two chickens are doing what they're supposed to be doing. And I said to Paul, you know, that white chicken, I'll give it another couple of weeks, otherwise it's, it's really starting to look like a chicken schnitzel to me at the moment. <laughs> yeah. And that's what God was doing. You see, he, he was looking at the nation of Israel and they weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. And God was blessing them and God was caring for them and God was loving them and God was protecting them. But in the end, brothers and sisters, God broke off the unproductive branches. And it's contrary to nature, it says in verse 24, because something else weird happened. You see, you would never get a wild branch, a branch that you're not sure what's going, what it's doing and, and put it into a good rootstock because you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what you're going to get. 
You wouldn't do it. But God doesn't work like that. You see, God does that. He's taken a wild branch that really would not be used and put it into that rootstock. And you know, that's sovereignty. He's allowed to do that. He can do things contrary to nature. That's what sovereignty is all about. Remember we said it many weeks ago, it's not about being really nilly and being mean and doing your own thing. This is what sovereignty is about. And what we see here, we see fairness, the fairness of God, another lovely character. In verse 22 it says, it says this, Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God. The wild shoots were, were granted, were grafted in to, to the promises, the rootstock of God. It wasn't usually done like this. And that's the kindness of God. But this is how we read that verse, right? This is how we read this verse. Consider therefore the kindness. And that's it. That's all we see. It's all we read. And that's all we consider. You see, love, God, God is love. God is kind. God is compassionate. And that's where we leave it. You know, the Israelites all experienced that from God. But here's what Paul says. And remember what I've told you about why we are looking at this, why Paul says we need to learn the lessons from Israel. Here's what he says. He says, Consider therefore the kindness and the sternness of God. Now what does consider mean? It means to to think carefully about, especially in order towards making a decision. So you have to think about something in order to make a decision. Consider the kindness of God, absolutely. But also the sternness. What the kindness means, you know what it means. It means the, of good or benevolent nature or disposition. But what about the sternness? What does stern mean? Stern means firm, strict, uncompromising. That's what it means. But that word's only actually used in the NIV. In the King James, the ESV and the, the, the New Standard Version, the word is severity. So it's consider therefore the kindness and the severity of God. And what does severity mean? It means rigid exactness or accuracy. Hmm. So you need to consider both. God's love, huh? but also he... His, 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 his rigid exactness of how he wants things done to be. That's what Paul's saying. That's where they, 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 they fell down, the Israelites. In verse 23, we have God's forgiving nature because it says there, because that if they, it says in verse 23, and if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted back in. 
See, the branch that was broken off by God, he can put it back in because he's sovereign and he can do that, but not willy-nilly. What does it say? If they don't persist or remain or continue in their unbelief. There's a reason why God broke the branch off and there's also a reason why he can and one day will graft it back in. So the question is how long? How long? That's what verse 25 refers to, that next section. Uh, I do not want to be, you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel is experiencing a hardening uh, in part until the full number of Gentiles come in. When is this future of Israel going to kick in? We have to talk about that for a few minutes because it's, it's, in, the, it's in the passage and we need to know what it says. When the fullness of the Gentiles coming, what does that mean? Let me tell you something that, that Jesus said in Matthew 16. I will build my church. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Peter says, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. When the last stone of Jesus Christ's church is put into place, whenever that is, that's when the building, the church is complete. That's the fullness of the Gentiles. In other versions, that's what it's referred to. Now, some people want to make a, put a date on that. When will that? I don't know. Again, when I go and, and, and look at a job I, and they say, oh, how long will it take? I say, well, you know, 12 to 15 work. And I say, working days, not, not 15 days, because they say, oh, yeah, okay, one, two, three, four. No, no, 15 working days. Now, let me give you a quick illustration. This is not how I work. Let me qualify. This is not how I work, right? So I get the job. Day one, week one, I turn up, I do one day's work. Day one. Next week, Kat, I turn up again to your house and do two days' work that week, and that's it. Two weeks, three days' work. The next week, I don't turn up at all, I'm busy, I'm surfing. I don't surf. So, you know, three weeks, three days' work. The fourth week I turn up again and uh, it's been a good week. I do, I do three days work that week. So in a month, that's only six days. What does happen sometimes though is that I work really hard and you get to, you know, near the end and there's an issue and it happened one time. The vanity wasn't available. Ordered in time, paid for, it just didn't arrive. And so I still got the job done in 15 working days. But the last two days, there was a huge gap in there, wasn't there? Waiting for the vanity to turn up because it couldn't be done. So that's a bit, it's a little bit like this, this uh, church that, God, that the Lord is building. There's a certain number that's required and it's going to take X amount of time. Neither, none of us knows, and the Lord made it very, very clear. We don't know the time or the day or the hour, and we don't know how many living stones it's going to require to build that church. But one day, one day, that last stone has to go in, doesn't it? It makes sense. 
And when the last stone goes in, like my bathroom, when that vanity goes in, it is finished. It is complete. The fullness of the Gentiles. My time's gone. And after that, very quickly, after that, something happens. An event in, in 1 Corinthians 4, the rapture comes. The Lord comes to the air, calls his, his church home to be with him. And then, and then it's followed by the second coming of Jesus Christ on the earth. And you read all about that in Revelation. And it's at this time what this passage refers to. It's at this time when they will all, all of Israel will see the Messiah and Jesus Christ. They'll all hear what he has to say. And the scripture says they will all believe. Amen. Finally, all of Israel, all the people that are left at that time, whenever that time is, all the Jews, all the Israelites will finally hear and see and all believe. First time in the history of mankind. And that's referred to, and that's talked about in many places in, in Zechariah, for instance, chapters 12 and 13. It says there, and I appreciated what you said, uh, Evan, about, you know, what, what, uh, you know, people looking at the Lord and, and what you read, because in Zechariah it says, it says that the Jewish nation will look upon the one whom they pierced. Mm. And then finally, in verse 32, we, we, we're reminded, we're reminded of a, of, of a character that I really, really appreciate in, about God, because it's really relative to me. The mercy of God. The mercy of God. It says there in verse 32, it says, uh, for God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. God wants to show his favour, his mercy, his unmerited favour, his love and compassion, not to just Jews, not to the Gentiles, but to all who believe, all who believe. So brothers and sisters, we've learned from chapter 11, Israel has a future. God is a promise maker. God is a promise keeper. God, the God of Israel is the God of you and I this morning. He's our God. And you know, he, he's, he's done similar things for us. He's given us many promises in the Lord Jesus Christ. Many. Some have already been fulfilled. Like forgiveness and pardon and acceptance, adoption. Some are being fulfilled right now in your life. Being transformed into the image of his son and 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 some will be ful- will be fulfilled in i believe the not too distant future where the lord says i will come again and take you to be with myself are you encouraged by that are, are you encouraged to think that god is a promise keeper not like us and look, these beautiful attributes prove to us that that's his heart's desire are you encouraged I want to ask you this morning, all of us, it doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not, do you believe 
Do you believe the testimony of the Bible, of who God is, what his intentions are? Because it's relative to you. It doesn't matter who you are. Because you can see there are consequences for belief and unbelief. You don't escape because you don't believe. And then finally I want to ask you, have we learned anything over the last four weeks, even though it's three sermons, about the examples left to us in the scriptures of the nation of Israel? Have we actually learnt anything from those warnings?